to Scanner School. This podcast is here to teach you everything you know about the Scanner Radio Hobby. My name is Phil Lichtenberger, and my amateur radio call sign is W2LIE. So today is session 216 of the podcast, and you can find all the session notes online at scannerschool.com slash session 216. Hey, today we've got a really great guest on the podcast. I'm happy to introduce you guys all to Dave Kalahar. Now, Dave is not only a full-time RVer, but he's also a retired commander in the Civil Air Patrol, or CAP, here in the United States. Now, going into our conversation, I knew a little bit about the CAP, but I also knew I had a lot to learn about the organization. Like, I know, you know, there's there's wings or squadrons, branches, right? Whatever you want to, whatever you can understand them as, but Right, the I guess the actual word here is, is squadrons throughout Long Island, and I do know they go up and they fly. And I've never been able to actually receive anything from the CAP, but after talking to Dave, I'm kind of understanding why. But got to do a little bit more hunting, I think, for uh, for active frequencies. But you know, Dave is he's a pro. When we start talking, Dave gets right into it, and it's pretty obvious that Dave spent about 45 years in broadcasting <laughs> so he knows a thing or two about getting behind a microphone and i was i was really blown away about uh just the way dave has has a great way of explaining things and uh he's much better at this than i am so while we're talking you might notice there's a couple of pops and glitches in the conversation we did have a little bit of an internet issue between him and I. There was a little bit of a delay and a lag issue also that was coming in there. But uh, as a true professional, Dave was able to power right through it. And uh, I, I think that there's, you know, even with a couple of snap, crackle, and pops that we have in this conversation that was recorded, the content is is just there. And and, and this this is a really this is a really strong episode. Let's put it that way. There's a lot of content here. There's a lot to digest. Dave did an awesome job at explaining what the mission is of the Civil Air Patrol, how it got started, and even how you can get involved with the CAP. Now, there's a lot of stuff that we can do as civilians. There's a lot of stuff that we can do as radio listeners and even as radio operators, and that is very interesting. So you don't need to be a pilot. You don't need to fly. In fact, if you don't like flying, you can still you can still be a part of it as well. So make sure you stick around to the end of the podcast because I'm going to share with you Dave's website. In fact, Dave will even share it towards the end of the podcast uh, himself. Plus, we'll drop a link for the Civil Air Patrol's website so that you can check them out even further. So before we get over there, let me just say again, Dave, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Again, this is completely Dave's idea. And if you want to be a guest on the podcast, all you have to do is go to scannerschool.com, click on podcast, and then from the submenu, be a guest. 
Now, before we get any further in this week's podcast, I want to take a few minutes to thank our Patreon supporters. Now, Patreon is an affordable way for you to support the podcast and our upcoming expansion into YouTube for 2022. So think of Patreon as the PBS model of helping out Scanner School. For a monthly or yearly donation, not only do you help support the podcast, but depending on your donation tier, you will receive certain benefits. The most popular benefit tier being our $5 a month or the $51 a year tier. It's the same tier. We just discount if you can pay us over a year. Now, this tier offers the podcast and YouTube videos early. And also, you receive a free squelchy pack of stickers, several discounts, and access to our monthly live scanner radio roundtable discussion we hold monthly on Zoom. Oh, and by the way, most of the Patreon levels also get a special version of the podcast that does not include the middle advertising break in each episode. Now, find out more about Patreon and our supporting tiers by visiting scannerschool.com Patreon. I'd also like to take a moment here and thank all of our Patreon supporters. Alan Gonzalez, Arthur Heron, Bill Kay, Brandon Sammons, Brian King, Buzz Gold, Chris Paris, Craig Harper, Dan, Dave Pascoe, David C., Danny Crotty, Ed Walsh, Edward Bramlett, Glenn Wright, Greg Johnson, Guy Lee, Jack Haycock, Jacob Jabison, Jacques Berry, James Broxson, James Felling, James Pruda, Jay Reed, Jeff Block, Jeff Chapman, Jeff McLeod, Jenny Taylor, Jim B., Jim Heinrich, Joe Curtis, John Cordoff, John Keel, John Sweeney, John Goldenberg, Joshua Robb, Ken Newberry, Kenneth Fowler, Kevin Zwicky, Lenny Bauer, Les Stevenson, Lloyd R., Lynn Smith, Mark Beebe, Mason Kramer, Michael Gorman, Michael Kroger, Mike Lopez, Nicholas Stenger, Paul Teal, Paul Seish, Randy Cummings, Randy Lee Wright, Raymond Hill, Ronnie Box, Sal Marandola, Scott Leftgren, Terry Weatherford, Tim Mazza, Todd Glendie, and William Arcand. Dave, thank you so much for being a guest on today's podcast. This is, uh, is going to be a good one. Thank you. Well, thanks, Phil, for having me. I appreciate being here. Well, again, this was this was all your idea. So before we get started on today's topic, why don't you give us uh, like a brief summary of uh, your background in uh, in scanning? Well, like a lot of people, it started with a small handheld crystal controlled, I think it was a Radio Shack or realistic scanner. After one of my neighbors had one of those Regencies with the lights, you know, going by fast and you could hear the police and the sheriff and the fire and he had one of those small handheld uh, four-channel deal, so I uh, bought that from him for some crazy price, and the rest is history. I don't think I could even count the number of scanners I've had over the years or two-way radios that do scanning, so it's been uh, it's been since the 70s. I'll put it that way. Gotcha. So you've seen a, quite a few differences and changes. Yeah, and I, I obviously the biggest change was when we had uh, no more crystals, but we had computer memory to store all the, the channels. And I think it was the BC-100, the first Bearcat uh, handheld that didn't require crystals. I think it had 16 channels, maybe. And that was a revolutionary change right there. So, And now, of course, we have to have complicated scanners because of trunking and all that. Right. Completely, completely, completely different world on that one. So excellent. And then um, something interesting that uh, you passed along to me before we started the, the, this conversation here. You travel quite a bit right when it comes to scanning so you want to touch on that really quick yeah and uh, i uh, have uh, been living all over the country and uh, lived 16 years in california uh, working as a broadcaster for a large church ministry and we retired my wife and i retired in april we purchased a rv 
And we have been traveling all over the country since then, about 11,000 miles uh, since last May. We are currently in Lakeland, Florida, to uh, work for the Sun and Fun, which is the second largest air show in America every year. It'll be in April. And we're here as a part of what they call the early birds to set up uh, the show. It's going to be about 200,000 people coming through here for a week. And uh, we're a part of the operations to help get that ready. And they provide us an RV site with uh, all the fixings. And uh, I just, in fact, uh, finished my code plugs for radios here and got my uh, my ham radios all set up last night. So uh, while I'm sitting put, it's uh, easy for me to do that. Otherwise, I've just been uh, hamming here and there as I can find frequencies in our travels. We went all the way from California to Oregon across the country, spent some time in Colorado, went up through the Upper Peninsula, up over to Maine after spending some time in Pennsylvania with my granddaughter's birthday and then down to Georgia and Florida. And uh, we'll be headed to the Keys in the late uh, part of April. And then we we don't know where we're going to go after that. That's the cool thing about living in an RV. <laughs> that you is just, nice. You just don't know where you're going to go. Yeah, it's been it's been great. Right. So so what is it you do with the air show? You, so you're setting up. You're actually part of the broadcast team for that, or you're just uh, just helping out? Well, there's there's a couple. Yeah, there's a couple of things. So I'm right now helping out in the sign shop. So there are literally thousands of signs that must be made. So that people that arrive at the air show know where to go. There's a lot of camping here. There's certain kinds of aircraft. There's food vendors. There's a tremendous amount of signage that has to go up. So I'm helping with that. And then my wife is involved with some marketing things and databases, that kind of thing. Nice. Okay. I didn't realize that, you know, when you go to an air show like that, because the only one I've ever really been to is the one that's right here, local to me. And there's no RVing. It's a state park, but it's all meant for like, parking your car so it's interesting to hear that you can actually bring an rv down there and just camp at the uh the air show that sounds like it could be a lot of time a lot of fun so the, the whole time you're down there so that's really interesting well we're not only doing the camping but during the fly-in because it is a fly-in people fly their planes in they park them in a field then they set up a tent under their wings Get so out of here. they fly in and they enjoy the the, the air show and they're actually camping on the ground. So that's all a part of what a fly-in is. And that's what makes this a, a gigantic event. Uh, the other large event for flying in is uh, Oshkosh, which is in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, every July. So that's the big, big daddy. And this is kind of the kickoff to the air show season here at Lakeland. Very neat. I never, never even thought about that. So you can come in from all different ways, I guess. Uh, planes, trains, and whatever else, right? <laughs> through, through Florida. <laughs> yeah, so... Something like that, yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. But to tie into, I guess, you know, what we were going to talk about today with the air show, that, that's a, a good segue into it. But we're going to talk about uh, Civil Air Patrol. So why don't you explain just from, you know, the basics, what is what is the Civil Air Patrol? It's an organization that uh, is kind of, I guess a lot of people just don't know how big CAP is, and I'm going to call it CAP to abbreviate Civil Air Patrol. It is the official auxiliary, civilian auxiliary, of the United States Air Force. So uh, it came to be 80 years ago, Phil. It's 80 years old. During World War II, we had submarines from Japan and from Germany that were patrolling our shores, the Pacific and the Atlantic. And we were involved in the heavy war effort, and they allowed civilians to become patrollers of our coasts. Uh, they actually allowed civilians to strap onto their aircraft bombs 
And in fact, the early Civil Air Patrol actually sunk a U-boat off the Atlantic coast of the United States. And this is how serious the problem was. So, And this is just knowledge that I know. So they captured German soldiers at some point, found in their pockets movie ticket stubs to a movie theater in Green Cove Springs, Florida. Now, Green Cove Springs, Florida is south, very far south of Jacksonville, Florida, but it's on the St. John's River. It, the St. John's River is very large, and it comes out from the Atlantic at Jacksonville, then goes south. So a U-boat was able to get inshore of America and actually travel and allow sailors to get off that that u-boat to get into a theater in america so there was a real problem the civil air patrol was a part of the solution that the army air corps had then following world war ii congress decided to enact a separate service branch called the air force and when they established the u.s air force the congress said and you will also have an auxiliary and it will be called the civil air patrol so that's how it started the money that is provided to Civil Air Patrol comes from the United States Air Force budget. The last report that we made to Congress, the budget for CAP was $39.1 million for operations and maintenance. $10.8 million was for buying new aircraft because they buy new aircraft all the time. $1.7 million that year for buying new vehicles. And in that year, $1.1 million for buying VHF radios from Motorola and some other radio equipment. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And I really want to have this discussion with Phil uh, to, to let communicators know that CAP as a volunteer is a terrific option to utilize the talents that you've come across with CB radio, amateur radio, scanning, GMRS. If you're a hobbyist that has an interest in those areas, Civil Air Patrol will allow you to take that interest and that knowledge and then with additional training, use all of that knowledge and interest to, to, uh, to forward the mission that CAP has today in the United States. And there's a lot of things going on. We do an awful lot of things in CAP. Right now, there's about 38,000 adult members in CAP, about 29,000 cadets. And let me differentiate between that a little bit. The, uh, the senior members are the adults. They do missions and they run the program. The cadets are between the age of 12 and 18, generally speaking. They're junior high, high school students. And they get involved in kind of a semi-military program that starts off as a fellowship program. And then it pulls them forward into a leadership program. It is such a sophisticated program for the cadets that if they get to the midway point in the program, they can enter the military at one grade higher than other people that are going into the military. That's quite a big deal. So it's a very sophisticated program. The Air Force obviously wants to use that to find uh, the next set of leaders in our country the future members of the Air Force and maybe other military branches as well. So there's those two elements right there. But the emergency response part of CAP is where the communications gear comes in. There is across the country 728, I believe the current number is, 728 VHF FM repeaters. These are also P25, uh, dual mode repeaters, uh, analog P25. 
That's 728 all across the country, Puerto Rico, Hawaii. We have more than 12,000 VHF FM P25 radios, handhelds, mobiles. More than 2,000 HF stations are in operation in CAP. That's almost almost 2,100 HF stations now in, in CHP. And these are ALE Motorola radios, and there's a whole new line of HF radios being rolled out to the squadrons and the individuals that have HF stations in CAP. So if you're a communicator, right there, that should be telling you that there's an awful lot of assets that are available for use in the missions that we do. And CAP also has the largest fleet of Cessna aircraft in the world. At last count, 560 single-engine aircraft. The majority of those are Cessnas, 172s, 182s, and 206s. And about a third of those aircraft are all glass cockpit. They're, they're updating all to the newer, we call it the G1000 system. It is a totally two-monitor glass system with everything integrated into the control panel that way. The other aircraft are the standard, you know, you have all the gauges for your altitude and pitch and uh, speed and all that. But uh, they're very serious about high tech. There's also right now more than 1,500 uh, small drones that CAP is training and using on different missions. We have gliders. We have hot air balloons. Over a 1,000 vehicles are currently in place across the country. So this is all money that comes from taxpayers, but yet this is a civilian operation. So we have oversight from the Air Force, but yet we're a nonprofit for some of the stuff that we do inside CAP. So that's kind of an overview of, of what we do, and I guess we can talk about the missions that ordinary people like you and I can do within the within civil air patrol i I gotta tell you you explain this very well because i'm sitting here writing notes and putting down questions to ask you and you'll go ahead and you'll answer those questions (laughs) before so uh very well done very very good explanation i can i can tell you you probably explained this uh at least once or twice before in the past right as far as what uh cap does and what you do when i wear my cap hat i'm a major so i've achieved the grade of, of major in cap And I've been involved with public affairs. In fact, my specialties are public affairs and communications. Mm -hmm. And I've also been a group, a group commander, just like the Air Force were broken down into the state, which are wings. Every state has a wing. Some of the larger states, Florida, California, Pennsylvania, they have uh, groups within those wings. And there's typically six to maybe 10 squadrons in a group, and then you have the squadrons. That's where the work gets done at the local level. In fact, there's 1,400 plus. I think there's 1,442, I think the last number I saw, squadrons nationwide. So there's a good chance there is a squadron near everybody that listens to this podcast, uh, including Puerto Rico and Hawaii, and there's some congressional squadrons as well. That is That's a huge organization. And I never really thought that it was that that big i mean i know a couple of guys that are involved here locally but i thought it was like a like a small club more than an actual like giant part of uh sub arm of uh of the air force but there's a lot it sounds like there's a lot going on here it's 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 amazing well, so like it like i said i know it is, it is the next local, to nothing <laughs> it is 
Well, it's the local it's the local community's touch of the Air Force, mm-hmm. because every CAP member is an airman, just like a, a member that serves in the actual Air Force. We're considered airmen. So we are the public's face to the Air Force, and we do localized activities. And really, we need to talk ab- about how communicators get involved. And just an example of some of the things that happened in the last couple of years, COVID has allowed this organization to learn how to operate remotely. We, we used to have uh, bases set up, uh, you know, where you've got everybody assembling and you're launching aircraft and you've got your communications and all of your other information is being compiled. We had to learn during COVID to do all this remotely. So now we have an extensive system going in place and has been in place that lets us do that, including a digital system that actually is going to be in place for all those repeaters so that you can listen to any of our repeaters from a centralized location at any time that you want. So if you're an incident commander or if you're the Air Force and you want to hear how a mission is going in California and you're sitting at the uh, operations center in Birmingham, Alabama, you're able to do that. And you're able to talk. A commander in Birmingham can talk to an aircraft over a local repeater in California via this system. It will be encrypted. So all of our radios can be encrypted on P25. They can be temporarily encrypted. The encryption can be turned off. And we have systems in place to allow communicators to do that as the mission requires it. And let's talk about some of those missions, too, because Mm -hmm. you you hear about search and rescue. And and CAP is the largest ground search and rescue organization in the country because the Air Force is tasked with – search and rescue in domestic space of the United States. So they summons CAP squadrons to go find downed aircraft, missing people. It's a number of scenarios in search and rescue, not as much as it used to be because systems are in place now to make it a lot easier to find people. And one of those things is cell phone forensics. We have a cell phone forensics team. The best there is, they can... They have been given access to the major cell carrier's information in an emergency. And if uh, Mrs. Mrs. and Mr. Smith have a son that was flying an airplane or was out hiking and he's overdue, they can give us his phone number and our uh, forensics team can actually figure out where and when he last pinged a cell site. And, you know, as you know, there's thousands of cell sites to make the system work. And each one of those talks in the background, we can find out from the pings where he was last located. That helps us get very close to performing these rescues. But it goes beyond that, Phil, because disaster relief has become gigantic within CAP. Whether it's a, a, a hurricane, a nor'easter up in your neck of the woods, they typically want us to fly uh, very early on as that disaster is unfolded to discover how much damage there was. So FEMA will send us up. We have airborne camera systems, a number of different systems that go on our aircraft from as simple as a member like you or I pointing a Nikon camera out the window to uh, systems that are attached to our aircraft that do specialized photography, to FLIR, commonly called predator balls, the, uh, the, the forward-looking infrared and video HD camera. We attach those to our aircraft in some locations as well to do certain kinds of missions. So that photography can help FEMA figure out how big is the disaster because then FEMA can say, okay, I need to send X number of trailers and this many 
pallets of water and this many blankets or whatever by looking at the size of a disaster and get it in there. But more importantly, we have flown missions over entire neighborhoods that were wiped out, and we take photographs of those homes that have been posted publicly on the FEMA website. So during the Nor'easter, where this technology was developed here about five or six years ago when New Jersey was uh, really hit hard with storms and it flooded homes, the homeowner is able to uh, to find his house online, a, a picture of their damage, and that may sound strange, but he is able to go to his insurance company and say, here is my home, this is what the damage looks like, and the insurance company can begin to process what he needs to rebuild quickly. That oh, is wow. a huge help to citizens like you and I there that are in a disaster. And that's all done by Civil Air Patrol volunteers with the equipment that we've been given. We also do counter drug and drug interdiction missions and homeland security as well. There's border patrol in California and Texas. More for the humanity side of things, when people come across the border and they forget that it's a desert and there's lots of miles of desert and they don't have the supplies, we're able to spot those people, get help to them during those kind of patrols that we do. We also do air defense intercept training. We act as the as the fox for the Air Force to learn how to scramble to Go find aircraft that have gone into an airspace that they shouldn't be in. I personally have done dozens of those kind of flights when I was in California. We go out on a mission. There's typically three aircraft in CAP. One of them does the mission. The Air Force finds them. The other is a hybrid aircraft. This is an aircraft that goes very high in circles as a communications relay. So we always want to have positive communications with the Air Force, with their traffic control, and all the aircraft. And CAP communicators do that from one of our aircraft. We provide all kinds of other air support for the Air Force. But there's also other clients, we'll call them, or customers. And those are the states, the emergency operations centers and states. They come up with all kinds of missions for us. In California, for example, the fires trying to figure out how extensive the fire damage might have been or doing some some uh, prevention before they occur. You know, when lightning hits a large tree, it can sit there and smolder that tree for three or four days, maybe longer. So they have been trying to send out assets to go identify where these hotspots are so that a crew can go in and put out that hot spot before it ignites an entire large fire. So we have equipment for that, and we've been able to do that. So local municipalities, they sometimes want to know what's happened around their airport. A county you may live in may have three, four, ten different small airports, and they're in charge of those airports and the property. But putting an airplane up, taking pictures of that will help them identify fence lines and overgrown foliage or whatever. So that's one of the many missions we do for local municipalities. And then there's training. To do all this, you have to have training. In the latest report to Congress, we did 47,000 training sorties in that one year. That's just going out and doing a sortie where you take off, you go do a mission or training, you come back. That's a heck of an awful lot of training. And the Air Force pays for that fuel so that we can do that and our, our, our people can be trained to all these missions. We also fly our cadets, and we call them orientation flights. So every one of our cadets is entitled to five one-hour flights in our aircraft. They don't take off, they don't land, but they fly the aircraft 
for the five hours that they're airborne. And there's different profiles. They learn how to do a stall. They know how to turn, how to do approaches, uh, and different elements of learning how to fly. They also get five hours in a glider. And this is a non-powered aircraft that is pulled up to altitude. They're released. The cadet gets to control the glider and learn more about all the uh, avionics and all about uh, the five principles of flight. So we fly an awful lot of students, including Air Force ROTC and Air Force Junior ROTC cadets as well on mission. So that's the pilots. They're doing that part. But the uh, the adult part of this is where most of the work gets done. And, and CAP has communicators. Uh, we have finance people. We have educators that, that are involved in aerospace education. We have cadet people, uh, people that really want to get involved with students and, and uh, work with them in their fellowship leadership program. Basically, 29 different jobs are available in CAP once you become a member. So the process to join CAP is pretty simple. Show up at a local squadron. You can search for them online or you can go to the National uh, Civil Air Patrol website. Just search Civil Air Patrol on Google. You're going to get there and go to a tool called Find a Squadron. Put in your state or maybe your zip code and you, you're going to find a squadron within 50 miles of where you live. They typically meet once a week. Sometimes there's training on weekends. The extent of how much you get involved is kind of up to you. They want you to go to three meetings to see if it's a good fit for you because maybe you don't want to spend the time to, to, to get involved. Maybe you think it's too military or maybe it just doesn't fit. It's okay, but uh, it's helpful to go to three meetings and, and then they'll have a quick uh, discussion with you. You'll have a chance to ask all your questions. You'll be doing that during every meeting anyway. And uh, typically they get you involved in the activity of the night. It might be uh, learning how to do CPR. It might be learning how to run an AEG or going out to the aircraft and sitting in the cockpit of an aircraft or looking at the radio gear, participating in some other kind of training during those three weeks. Fingerprints are taken. There is a small fee you pay for the processing of that. And then after a short time, uh, you become a member. And membership includes not only the job that you pick out, or maybe it's multiple jobs you pick out, but there's also a pretty terrific personal development program that they have that has multiple levels that is really some terrific training for bettering yourself, not only within CAP, but within whatever uh, job that you might have in the world. Learning to become a better leader is something we all can use, and CAP has really developed a fantastic uh, program. It's based on Air Force training. In fact, it's all run from Air University, and uh, they modified the program here a couple of years ago. It's, uh, it has become a world-class training program for all of our members. There's five levels in that. It helps the member to learn how the organization operates, what the opportunities are, and it builds on that over a number of years as you take the program. So that's basically the overview, Phil. You might have a few questions in there. Just a couple. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's, there's a lot going on. Obviously, every squadron is different. Mm -hmm. Some squadrons have a nice facility and they're being sponsored by somebody at an airport. Other squadrons have been un unable to obtain uh, facilities. They may not have an aircraft. Not every squadron has an aircraft. About a third of our squadrons have an aircraft. Some of our squadrons are only senior members. Some of them are only cadet members. And then you've got composite squadrons, which have a mix of both. And those typically will have an aircraft and be located on an airfield uh, 
more times than not, I think. Hey, did you realize it takes us almost $100 a week just to have this podcast episode professionally edited and sent over to you? This doesn't even include website and podcast hosting, administrative help, and other monthly subscriptions that are required to put the podcast out there. Now, you can help us offset these costs when you shop online. So if you're looking for a scanner radio or some software, looking to bid on items over on eBay, or if you're looking to purchase anything, and I mean anything, on Amazon, you can help support Scanner School in the process. And this doesn't come at any extra cost to you. So please check out ScannerSchool.com support for the multiple different ways that we have out there that you can help support us when you shop online. Again, ScannerSchool.com support. Are you looking to learn more about the Scanner Radio Hobby? We currently have courses on how to get started and up and running with software-defined radios and how to turn your SDR into a fully functioning scanner radio. With free software, you can see more and do more with trunking than ever before. And with new courses scheduled for the upcoming months, our offerings will be expanding into both Uniden and Whistler hardware and software. Check out our courses at courses.scannerschool.com or by looking for the link in this podcast description. National Communications Magazine is your personal library of scanner, CB, GMRS, FRS, MURS, and two-way radio articles written by the best minds in the business over the past three decades. Your NatCom personal online access account allows you to download the newest issues of America's Hobby Radio Magazine, as well as back issues, too. Visit natcommag.com to download your free sample issue and sign up today. Did you know that a pager can make a great addition to your scanner radio collection. And even if I didn't own East Coast pagers, I still have one or maybe a couple of pagers as a part of my scanner radio setup. This is because a pager can be used to just monitor your local fire department or your regional departments. And if you set it up correctly to alert you when the tones are sent over the air, then the pager will remain silent until you need to know what is going on. This frees up your scanner to monitor everything else that's going on besides your local stuff or can prevent you from missing the local stuff because your scanner is busy doing other things. Now, pagers aren't just limited to fire dispatches anymore. Unication has great solutions to monitor both analog and P25 paging systems where many public safety and police departments are switching over to. Swiss Home and Apollo make great analog solutions as well, and all three still sell Pogsack and Flex pagers, still in use by many departments for text alerting. East Coast Pagers is an Apollo, Swiss Home, and Unication dealer serving the North American market and, of course, is one of my online companies. So if you're looking for a personal-use pager or one for your department, contact us for a free quote and let us know you're a Scanner School listener for something a little extra with your order. For our full inventory or to request a quote or just to contact us, please visit eastcoastpagers.com. So you said before, right, you guys are all volunteers, right? I mean, it's there's mostly mostly yes. the organization made of volunteers. Okay. Yes. And so to it's get a involved. It's civilian, a civilian right. organization. So to get involved, you don't need to have a pilot's license now. You could just walk in with just no no flight experience whatsoever, or do you need to have some sort of flight experience? No. No. Two-thirds of our – at least two-thirds of the members have, have no piloting experience whatsoever. 
So we do always actively search for pilots, and the pilots have their own set of things to go through to become proficient, and uh, there's a higher set of standards. If you're a private pilot and you've got 150 hours, uh, you can actually then apply to be a mission pilot. And there's a whole other set of standards. But two-thirds of our membership or more have no experience as a pilot at all. They're not currently a, a pilot of any kind. So when we fly, we fly with a crew of three, typically. Only the pilot flying the plane has to be FAA-certified pilot. The person in the right seat, which is actually a mission commander, does not have to be a pilot. It's helpful if they are. They sometimes are. Then in the back seat, who's ever doing whatever the task is, whether it's looking or taking photos or operating equipment, is also not a pilot. So if you have an interest in emergency services and helping your community and doing communications and you're not a pilot, this is an organization for you. That is very interesting because you never really think about it, at least I wasn't thinking about it as, you know, more than just planes flying around and doing and doing surveys, but there's a lot of stuff going on here. So you've got, I mean, like I said, you you've got different jobs within within Civil Air Patrol that people can can volunteer for. So it's not just flying a plane; it's actual stuff to do. You know, like 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 other other pieces. Well, if you think of the actual armed forces. The vast majority of uh, of members of the United States Air Force are not pilots. It's mm-hmm. all the support in the background. Right. It right. takes many people to get an airplane to fly for an hour. You right. know. So, so that not every not everybody is a general. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I got you. So, so that's good. So, basically, if you have any interest in in this part, right, the the the, the civilian part of, of the Air Force and, and being a volunteer for the for CAP, then you could just pretty much be a citizen in good standing, let's put it that way, and and apply to be part of this. Now when you when you show up and you go through, you know, the orientation sessions and everything else, you'll have the opportunity would you have the opportunity to start training to get your pilot's license or that is that something that you'd have to do on your own and then become the pilot within CAP or would would you get pilot training as part of being a volunteer within the organization? That's a that's a good question. It's a kind of a multiple answer. So Okay. So uh let's start with the cadet side of that. Because the Air Force has recognized there is a tremendous pilot shortage coming. All of the armed forces, the airlines, right now, if if you were a, a student that had any inkling in aviation, this is the time for junior high, especially high school, and young college students to consider aviation because there is a tremendous need and there are tremendous incentives out there to get training for a very low cost. In the CAP, cadets that get to that first big level of leadership are eligible to apply to have flight training for free. That means the instructor hours, the flying hours, which is typically the solo about 40 hours, it varies, but that's about it. And then another 40 hours beyond that, paid for by the Air Force through CAP. Excuse me. So there's tremendous incentive for students. If you're a senior and you have an interest in flying, the networking that you will do in CAP will allow you to come in contact with flight instructors that will be more than willing to help you, maybe at a reduced rate, to be an instructor in airplane and you can rent 
the CAP aircraft for a greatly reduced cost than you might pay for rental at a regular FBO. Now, there are some rules attached to that. We don't want to be in competition with FBOs. So there's some rules attached to that. But because you're involved in the aviation community when you join CAP, if you have an interest in that area, your I's will be dotted and your T's will be crossed with the ability to make some connections to do that flight training and become a pilot if you wish to do so. That's a, that's a whole other discussion. Anybody that looks into that gets kind of scared by the expense. Mm-hmm. A lot of students are taking out gigantic loans to do it. There's lots of other ways to do that if you're motivated, and I would encourage you to, to dig a little deeper into that if you have an interest like that. CIP is a foot in the door in that area. Gotcha. So the, the you guys have your own you have your own Cessnas and, and everything else like that. But are I mean all the all the fleet, the entire flying fleet of CAP is all your own your own planes, right? The volunteers don't bring their own planes to fly them for the for the missions, right? It's all done through the your your hardware. It's all provided by CAP. The Air Force buys new aircraft all the time. It didn't used to be that way. you know, fifteen, twenty years ago longer. We had uh, private individuals using their own airplanes. But at some point way back, the uh, Air Force started buying the Cessnas, providing those to squadrons, and now it's all provided by CAP. And are the planes all marked as CAP planes, or are they kind of incognito, or what would they look like? So basically, if a plane was flying overhead, you could spot one from the ground and know that that's a Civil Air Patrol plane? They all have very specific Civil Air Patrol markings. They're all red, white, and blue. Very specific, very large graphics on there. You can't miss it when you see a CAP aircraft at the airport or flying overhead. Interesting. They're quite uh, quite distinguishable. And is this something, out of curiosity too, because a lot of us who are you know into aviation a little bit, at least on the scanning side, have our own ADSB trackers. Now, being that you're part of a government branch, is this something that we can see on ADSB and, and find out where the flights are taking place, or are you guys off the radar, so to speak? No, all the aircraft now are equipped with ADSB. Obviously, uh, we've been doing that for a long time. Those are the the aircraft that have the uh, the G one thousand glass panels have all the advanced equipment, but the uh, the FAA call sign for CAP aircraft is CAP. Okay, so every flight will have CAP as a prefix, just like it's United. Flight 100 or United 100, make a left turn heading 180. It's CAP 454, clear to land. So you can clearly hear when you monitor air traffic on a scanner. If you hear the word CAP, you know that it's a CAP aircraft. And they will show up on FlightAware or Flight Radar 24. In fact, we are using that technology to track our aircraft during missions. <laughs> so gotcha. we use it too. We okay. have a specialized system that takes that information and it overlays it on all the charts and the search grids that we have so that we can monitor our aircraft real time just like the public can. Nice. Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of people listening are really you know, I, I've got my receiver sitting right over my shoulder too. So it's it's something that's always up and I get the alerts, you know, for, for certain air, air airplanes they take off and, and stuff like that, you know, in the local helicopter police helicopter, news helicopter gets airborne. So It'd be interesting to see, you know, if, if I put a, a wild card in there for CAP, if I'd catch anything locally, because I know there's repeaters here. I know I have people I've spoken with who are really big into uh, Civil Air Patrol, but never really had the discussion with them on how to 
follow them or listen to them. And uh, being that we talked about a couple of different things here, right? We've talked about P25 and then FM repeaters and ALE and uh, several other communication needs here. Let's, uh, because we are, you know, a scanning podcast, let's, let's start breaking down some of the communication side of, of, uh, of Civil Air Patrol. So you did talk about encryption. So we'll get that out of the way really quickly. You said encryption was sometimes used, but not always used. Is that correct? Well, they are. It depends on the mission. So gotcha. if the Air Force is having CAP do a particular mission that is sensitive, then they may request us to have encryption in the communication. I can tell you, though, we've had P-25 in place now since 2008. I think we started to convert to right around there. Mm -hmm. We started getting the bulk of the P-25 radios out there. But as anybody knows, and we're, we're dealing with long-range you know, aircraft away from a base, analog will have a signal long after P-25 basically falls off. Right. So a majority of what we do is still analog, but the push is on to make that changeover to P25, but there will be plenty of time in the future where analog will still be the primary communications method. I'm not going to give frequencies and all that information that is privileged, but I know it's out there, so people right. find it. It is. Yep. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's out there. And there's a lot of variabilities in every wing and how mm -hmm. they operate the repeaters. Uh, and what their network is, but it's pretty similar across the country. I can take a radio from California and use it in the state of Maine, and it's the interoperability is 100%. Okay. So let's let's break that down a little bit further then. So we won't talk about any of the frequencies specifically to them. I mean, I know they did, like you said, around 2008, they did a whole change of the frequencies when they went to narrowband. Yeah. But it's, it's – so it's P25, but – when you guys talk analog, because it is aviation, you stay narrowband FM or do you use AM? We use both. So our uh -huh. VHF system is just for us. Okay. But our base stations and our aircraft uh, have AM in them, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we're able to hear our aircraft when they're talking to air traffic control. And there are times that we'll talk to them as well on AM radio if we need to. But okay. the majority of our operations, 98% of our operations is all FM. Okay. And then you guys would talk then plane to plane or because you talk about a whole repeater network that's in there as well. So how does that actually tie into everything? Do you, you talk to the repeater and then everybody listens in the output of the repeater or how do the repeaters play? Because again, you're, you're talking about aviation here. Normally, there's no repeaters involved. So how does how does repeater play in uh, in your communications? Well, I didn't talk about the ground teams that CAP has. So okay. there are ground team members that go out with equipment that does direction finding. We didn't even talk about that. We're able to go out and listen to the uh, traditional emergency beacons that all aircraft have. Or the EPIRBs, and, right? Uh, and the newer beacons that personal, the EPIRBs, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we go out, when those go off, we're sent out to find those. The majority of the time, it's a false activation, and I could tell war stories for hours on that. But there are a small percentage of them are the real deal. So we are the ones to go out and find those to silence them or go find if somebody actually has an actual notification. And that, use, that uses people on our vehicles. So we have teams of two or three, maybe four, that go out in a vehicle and search for that. We also have, that's called a UDF team. They don't go off of road per se, but we have a team that's called ground team. They are capable to go off-road, to, to go hiking into 
into the wilderness or wherever they have to go. They're self-sustainable, and they will have portable VHF radios with them that allow them to talk to our aircraft or the repeater. So that's why we have the repeater, so that we can coordinate not only the aircraft, but also the base station and all the aspects of controlling everything going on in a mission and the people in the field. So that's how our repeaters help us. It also extends the range of aircraft to aircraft because it's line of sight, but there's a long range that can go over the horizon. And if you have a repeater in the middle, those two aircraft can talk to each other at a longer range. Makes sense, right? It certainly does. So that's why we have the repeaters. And we obviously have simplex frequencies too. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite often, air to ground is going to be simplex. We also have a, uh, a set of tactical frequencies. I call the, the, sequence, the secret squirrel frequencies because our airplane will always have one radio set to that frequency at all times. And if all else fails, a base station can break into the aircraft if something else has happened in the communication. So we have dual channel. FM VHF radios in our aircraft that can be set to any channel anywhere in their P-25. So we will often go up and circle a scene of some kind and relay communications between different agencies, whether it's police agencies or fire, uh, forestry, whatever it might be. We The ability to have an airborne system like that with people involved, we do that. We also fly airborne repeaters. You know, you can fly a 10-watt repeater in an aircraft, and we can change out the antennas to be different kinds of frequencies, whether it's 800 megs or 2 meters or whatever. We have the ability to do that. We have that equipment. So it makes a lot more sense now, because I was trying to figure out how, when you talk about aviation, it normally is air-to-ground or air-to-air. And I was trying to figure out what the repeaters are for. But now that you mentioned, you do have a whole section that just does ground. And, of course, that's where you need a repeater for. So a light bulb moment here. And, of course, I've only tried listening to the repeaters because that's what was listed. And I was never really hearing anything, not not even a repeater ID or nothing like that. So now I'm really curious to try and pop something in because you're saying VHF. So we kind of know what the spectrum is on that one. And uh, it is FM. So we know it's not within the AM this is a typical typical AM spectrum, and I won't I won't poke any further than that. <laughs> it's government frequencies, so anybody yes. that knows about spectrum knows there's little slices, and CAP is NTIA, not FCC. So it's controlled right. by NTIA, and it's government uh, it, government rules about ID specification, stability, and all that. Right, right, right. But even like during the air show here and stuff like that, I would expect to have heard, you know, something, but been very quiet. So I haven't really had much luck personally listening to CAP, but I know now, now that I've learned a little bit more from you today, what to look for and uh, even how to find, try and find, you know, where the local local group is and uh, how to spot them on, on a virtual radar and stuff like that. So really yeah. quick too, you, you did mention a, a little bit of a, acronym on there, which was ALE. Do you have anything you can talk about with ALE that uh, can break that down? Yeah, let's. And this is HF. So let's talk yep. about HF. And HF is is going is CAP is going to begin to use some digital communications to send messages in the future. The HF system used to be a primary military system of communications, and the Air Force had an extensive HF network at one point, especially with all of the missile silos and uh, tactical operations. 
But they let that network kind of fall apart over the end of the Cold War. And over a period of time, they concentrated on satellite communications and other kinds of communications. And then realized that CAP was still doing HF. They they said, we need to have a backup system. We need to protect ourselves against uh, certain influences to their tactical communications. And CAP was doing an HF net. They strengthened that. They uh, started ALE, which is Automatic Link Establishment. So radios, HF radios can, in ALE, they change channels on their own, and they do a beaconing, and this can be once an hour, every 15 minutes, however you set it, and it beacons from low to high or high to low, however it's set up, frequency ranges. So in using amateur vernacular, it might start at 80 meters and then go to 40 meters, then to 20 meters, and then to 15, and then to 10. And other stations that are listening can hear when these beacons occur and save that information. So when the operator goes to the radio and says, I need to talk to Colorado, what does my AOE beacon list look like? And 15 minutes ago on 20 meters, I saw a beacon from a station in Colorado. I can attempt to make a contact with them. That's essentially what ALE does. Hopefully I explained that okay. Mm-hmm. But it's a system that does beacons and is recorded within the radio what it heard of other stations so that you can see when maybe a propagation is available at a particular moment. As you know, propagation changes every minute of every day. Yes. (laughs) And, and, uh, and there's many variables based on the sunspots, a sunspot cycle, the rotation of the earth, John in the woods with gas. I don't know. It just changes. So this is a way for us to overcome that. The air force has tested our system. It is an operation 24-7. You can make a contact with a main station anytime in CAP. There are three nets every day, Monday through Friday, that test the system and test with traffic, including coded group messages. If you heard it on HF, you would probably not know it's CAP. It's run very much like a military net would be, and it's, it's, uh, it's designed so that nobody would be able to figure out things very easily. The Air Force has tested the system, and they have set flash simulation traffic on there to simulate missile launches just to see if we could get the message to them quickly and accurately, and we have been able to perform and do that. Nice. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that, that's that's more than enough. <laughs> so. We yeah we haven't really touched on on the podcast you know with much about like uh, ALE or something like that so I figured since you brought up ALE which is yeah. a good good primer just to discuss what it was and and you're right though with that propagation it could be could be here for a minute and then it's gone the rest of the day or it could be vice versa so just to have something up there that says you know a, a beacon that says this is where I could talk to right now is is more than more than helpful especially what, what you're doing. There's more than 2,000 HF stations across uh, North America, and I would say five to 600 of those are probably doing ALE all the time. And that is a pretty good beacon indicator that most people don't have the capability for. And that, uh, that really does help us to know when, when and how a message is going to get through. Right, exactly. So, I mean, you covered an awful lot today on the podcast. I mean, I can't, <laughs> I mean, the, the, all the information you, that you gave was, was a lot. Is there anything else that you think that 
maybe you left out or so because I went through my my notes here and as you were talking and all the questions I had you were you were answering before I could even ask them so like I said you've 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 gone through this a time well, or two well I covered it's a fire hose so <laughs> it just gave you a lot of information I'm happy to take questions I have a website that I am blogging our adventures in our RV and I invite anybody to go to that website you can get a hold of me through there you can send me email through the website it's Dave Kalahar.com. And uh, you'll see a, a way to send me email on there and watch our blog, subscribe to our blog and see uh, our adventures in our RV. It's D-A-V-E-K-A-L-A-H-A-R.com. And just go there. Uh, you got questions. You can reach out to me there. You can follow Janine and, and my adventure in our RV. And we blog about once a week or so. And we will probably have quite a bit of information coming up about how Sun and Fun operates and what we're doing here at Sun and Fun. Nice. Yeah. And and your website looks, like I said before, <laughs> it looks outstanding. I'm I'm kind of jealous of how, how how nice it looks. So you guys did a you guys did a good job setting <laughs> well, it up and keeping it updated. Well, so. thanks. No, no problem. And we'll be sure definitely too to uh, to put a link to the podcast or the link to your website in the session notes. So if anybody's uh, listening to this over on YouTube or on that podcast player, just look at the description for the podcast and you'll find a link right to Dave's website, right? Uh, either on your mobile device or right in the uh, the browser. If you want to find out about CAP, it's, it's GoCivilAirPatrol.com. GoCivilAirPatrol.com. Dot com and that'll get you to the national page with more information about CAP. Excellent. Dave, I mean this was more more than I expected when you when you brought the uh, the topic here. And again, this was this was you, right? You you came to me and said, Hey, I got a I got a great idea for an episode. So uh, I do appreciate you coming yeah. forward and saying, you know, because again, this is something that I knew very little about, uh, obviously from the way that uh before we started the conversation here, but I feel like I know I'm an expert now after listening to uh, to you speak about this. But I know it's still only just a, a small part of what it is that you guys do. You, you did an excellent job explaining everything. Well, this is a way the communicators, scanner people can get involved and actually take that hobby to a new level. That's the way I right. look at it. So really quick before we go, we touched about on a lot of stuff on CAP, but the one thing we didn't talk about is basically what the role is if for somebody who wants to come in and just and just do radio. What positions are available for somebody that, again, may not be a pilot, but wants to be part of the communication aspect of CAP? Right. It's called communications track. That is your job. It's communications. And the jobs you do in emergency services, you, you start off as a mission radio operator. That's where you talk to the assets in the field, whether it's simplex, repeater, you talk to aircraft, all the assets. Then you can also work your way up to what's called a communications unit leader, a CUL. The fire service has them. It's all female-related, It's uh, but you become the person that plans the communications. You figure out which repeaters and which channels to use and where your assets are going to be, which call signs you're using. You kind of uh, run herd over the mission radio operators, and you work on the incident command team. So those are the two steps. Take some time to get there, but it's very rewarding. And again, too, you must have other units out in the field, too, that are part of just basic communication. So just having basic radio knowledge and how to how to use a microphone and the release to listen can really play, you know, be a benefit. Well, yeah, you know, and and every every member takes radio training. It's called uh, I think it's called ICUT or intermediate communications training where they learn how to use the radios. 
you take an average person off the street and you give them a, a radio that has zones and channels, you know, and they have to learn that. They have to learn the alpha code, you know, the alphanumeric code, alpha, bravo, charlie, all that. Mm-hmm. And they have to learn proper procedures. So it's you're talking to, you know, station A, this is station B. So they learn all that, including our cadets. So that's why if you're already a communicator, you've got a massive jump on everybody else in the organization when you start that training. Excellent. So again, you can basically wear many hats or a singular hat within uh, within CAP. And again, if you want to just be part of the radio team, then you, you can, that sounds like something you can certainly do as, as a volunteer. Absolutely. All right, Dave. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for being here on the podcast. I'm glad we remembered to cover that at the end. <laughs> so I would have kicked myself for the rest of the night if yeah. uh, if I forgot to bring yeah. that one up with you. So again, you can uh, your website link will be again one more time. So it's DaveKalahar.com. D A V E K A L A H A R dot C O M. And there you'll find our blog, ability to send me an email if you have a question, all kinds of info, all kinds of information along those lines. Excellent. All right, Dave. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for uh, really explaining in, in great detail the whole history and the uh, the way that CAP operates and how we can how we can find them, monitor them, and uh, even be a part of uh, what CAP brings. Thanks again, Dave. Thanks for having me, Phil. So, what I tell you? What a great conversation and again this this was all dave's idea i mean this was an outstanding i hate to call them interviews because they're not interviews these are conversations right with with just it's the way i look at it right i'm, I'm having a conversation with somebody and this one i mean i'm i'm blown away it went really well but dave carried me around on on uh on his shoulders on this one so to speak with all of his experience and everything else so with that, I want to again thank Dave for coming on the podcast. Again, his website where you could check out all of his RV ventures. I have been following him since we did this uh, this recording. That's DaveKalahar.com. Again, D-A-V-E-K-A-L-A-H-A-R.com. And if you want to learn more about the Civil Air Patrol and you want to know how you can get involved, just go to GoCivilAirPatrol.com. Com. Again, that's GoCivilAirPatrol.com. We will put links to both Dave's website and the Civil Air Patrol website in the session notes for today's podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, do me a favor. Please share it with somebody because, again, that is how we teach more people about this hobby that we all love of scanner radios. So go and share the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to our podcast and your favorite podcast player, or over on YouTube, we can also get the podcast there as well. And we will catch everyone next week. Thank you so much for listening. Dave, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. And we will catch you all again next week. My name is Phil Lichtenberger, and this is Scanner School. We teach you everything to know about the scanner radio hobby. 73.